A very good morning. It's Sunday the 27th of January. This is News Talks on the Record with me, Susan Kyo, with you until one o'clock this afternoon. If you want to contact the programme, you can do so. You can send us a text on 53106 at a cost of 30 cent. We've got a busy show on the way for this Sunday. Uh, we'll start by taking a look at the Sunday newspapers along with our panel. Dan O'Brien, Chief Economist with the Institute for International and European Affairs, also columnist with Independent Newspapers. John O'Brennan, Professor of European Politics at NUI Maynooth, and Sheila Riley, Head of Digital with Iconic News, the regional newspaper group and former editor of the Longford Leader. Good morning. You're all very welcome along. Good, Good morning. morning, Susan. Now, before we get going, we're going to take a quick look at some of the headlines on the front of some of the newspapers. Today, we might start uh, with the Sunday Independent. Brexit on the front of the Sunday Independent. Big surprise there. Uh, Fine Gael in Brexit election alert. Philip Ryan writing this morning that the Thornish Simon Coveney has warned his senior officials that any change of position on the Irish backstory stop during Brexit negotiations could result in the government losing the support of the doll. Also Brexit uh, making the front of the Sunday Business Post 2 this morning, an exclusive by Michael Brennan there on the front page. This is based on a Red Sea poll. Irish voters tell government to reject all demands for a hard border and we will have lots more on all things Brexit with our panel in a moment's time. Uh, The Sunday Times this morning goes with pro-choice TD Troy is denied Holy Communion. The paper reporting that a Catholic priest refused to give communion to Fianna Fáil TD Robert Troy at a recent funeral mass in Westmeath because the politician supported the introduction of legalised abortion services. The Irish Mail on Sunday goes with an exclusive relating to the Kerry baby case this morning. The headline, Joanne Hayes, State to Buy Her Silence. Uh, John Lee reporting this morning that documents seen by the paper show that there's a Department of Justice proposal to offer Joanne Hayes and her family an undisclosed sum of money for the trauma and stress they've endured in the years uh, since the scandal. And finally, the Sunday World, uh, Nicola Talent uh, has an exclusive on the front page this morning. This relates to a nightclub boss murdered in Marbella in Spain this week. The paper reporting he had close ties to crime figures here in Ireland. And the headline this morning, Kinnahan, Playboy, Pal, Whacked. Now, we will start with Brexit. Uh, as I mentioned, there are lots of coverage in the papers today, unsurprisingly, after a very, very busy week Brexit-wise. Um, where What happened this week? We Theresa May's Plan B uh, that looked suspiciously like Plan A with that warning from the European Commission uh, that seemed to take the government by surprise. That was then uh, clarified the following day. And then we went from talk of no border uh, to talk of a border manned by soldiers. So a lot happening this week. We might start, though, by having a little listen back to some of the interview that Antishak Leo Vragar gave to Bloomberg in Davos uh, last week. If uh, if things go very wrong, it looked like it looked like twenty years ago. Well, it's, it's not going to look like Donald Trump's border, but I want yeah. you to paint a picture of what that border is going to look like. Um, it would involve customs posts. It would involve people in uniform, uh, and it may involve the need, for example, for um, uh, cameras, physical infrastructure, um, possibly you know police presence or mm. army presence to back it up. The problem with that, in the context of Irish politics and history, is those things become targets. Exactly. And we've already had a a certain degree of violence in the last few weeks. And in the last few minutes, the Thornish uh, uh, Simon Coveney, he's just finished speaking to Andrew Marr on the BBC. He was asked about those comments that the Taoiseach made. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. Look, what my um, Taoiseach uh, uh, and uh, and Prime Minister, as many people in, in Britain will understand it, said was he was asked to describe what a hard border looks like. Uh, And he described it to remind people what things were like 20 years ago. 
we cannot and should not be proposing going back there again. Uh, And so what I would ask people to think about is how far we've come in the last 20 years. Mm. What a peace agreement, called the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement or the 1998 Agreement, whatever perspective you come from, what that has done for relationships between our two islands. Let's not go backwards now and cause tension. And that was Thonishta Simon Coveney on the Mars show on the BBC in the past hour. Dan O'Brien, I might come to you on this first. Uh, you're writing in the Sunday Independent today, the backstop uh, chickens are coming home to roost with our economy in danger. And I, uh, for the purpose of this uh, conversation, if we could divide maybe our chat into political side of things and the economics of things, because I don't think there's anybody out there that doesn't realise that you know, a hard border spells an economic disaster. But let's talk about the politics of this for a minute, um, specifically in relation to the government's stance on the backstop. What do you make of what uh, the Taoiseach had to say firstly and Coveney's response to him there? Well, look, as, as uh, Professor Gavin Barrett uh, writes in the Sunday Independent today, that the, the backstop has been, the, the quote, the greatest gamble in recent Irish political history. Uh, it was always a very high risk uh, position to put on the table, in my view. It was a tactical error to put this on the table because it was always likely to lead to where we are now, a crisis because the British couldn't accept it. It was a dramatic move uh, and that's where we are now. And the stakes are extremely high. There are many people involved in this. We had the polls coming out, the Polish foreign minister coming out at the beginning of the week saying Ireland should back down on it. Um, this is a very, very risky situation uh, for Ireland and obviously for the Ireland's political leadership who has taken this gamble. Do you think they've backed themselves into a corner with the backstop? Painted themselves completely into a corner on this. And John, would you agree with that? Um, No, not quite. Um, I understand the logic. So I understand where Dan is coming from. But I think we were always to some degree going to find ourselves in a difficult situation because we were prisoners of the relative capacity of the British government to deliver on its commitments to both Ireland and the EU and the will uh, to actually get this thing through Parliament. Um, Let's remember that the UK made a solemn agreement with the European Union, including Ireland, in December 2017 Uh, that the backstop would be used as an insurance policy. Neither side wants to use it or expects to use it, but that's what the UK signed up to. That commitment was reiterated in March 2018 and most recently in November when the Brexit deal Mm -hmm. was done. What we're waiting for is the United Kingdom, uh, its parliament, to give a sanction to Mrs May. Arguably, uh, she should have gone to Westminster before she went to Brussels. But again... That's something that's out of our control. So from the very beginning, uh, I think we were always likely to face this kind of problem. Um, One other reason I think that it's occurred is that there's been this entanglement of the Article 50 negotiations with the future trading relationships which are to be conducted only when Article 50 uh, is concluded. But again, the United Kingdom agreed to that sequencing. You know, they could have contested it and we might not have found ourselves in this situation, but they did. And that's where we are. I do accept and I think part of Dan's argument is about this entanglement around the customs union and around regulatory arrangements for the single market in the future. But one final point I'd make is that this isn't just about the backstop. I mean, there are other issues uh, confronting parliamentarians at Westminster about the future relationship uh, that have also become entangled in this. 
this, and we also have a real stake in this, not just because of the future of the island of Ireland, which we're trying to protect, but because we are members of the European Union. The integrity of the single market, the maintenance of the integrity of the market, has got to be as much a priority for us as every other member state. Sheila, yeah, bring in on that. I would take in on that, and I would agree with a lot of what John says, I have to say. I don't necessarily think that the Irish government owns the backstop, to be honest. I think that uh, the EU is there as well, and they are part of this whole, obviously, this whole process, and as we know, we can't negotiate bilaterally with the UK in relation to it. So they have a role in this too. I think that initially, when we looked at when the backstop was discussed and agreed upon, if you like, it was the insurance policy. It was never envisaged that the backstop would actually be used because way back then when we were, these initial discussions were taking place, nobody envisaged, I think, that you'd have the chaos in the UK on the political scene that you have had in the last couple, since basically since this whole thing started in the last two years. So you couldn't have imagined that the backstop would become this much of an issue because... You couldn't have anticipated the chaos that was going to come out of the UK political political scenario. Like in that regard, I don't necessarily agree with uh, with what Dan has said in relation to it. I don't think I think now we're in a corner in relation to it. It's not for us to pull back, though, because we are there with the EU. And remember, for all our talk about the EU not throwing us under the bus and all that, the reality is that we are now going to become their frontier and we are going to be that frontier between Europe and the UK in a no deal scenario, in any scenario. We, we are the frontier. So they need us there as well, you know, so it's not a case of them not throwing us under the bus. They're not throwing themselves under the bus. They're not going to throw the union under the bus. And this is what ultimately this is about. Dan, you're shaking your head and well, come I back could, in there, Dan can, O'Brien. Can I just respectfully disagree? You know, it could have it could have been anticipated, and I did anticipate it. As soon as the backstop went on the table 14 months ago, I was pretty much alone in saying, this is a mistake. This is going to cause chaos. The British will not be able to swallow this. But they agreed to it, Dan. No, Theresa May agreed to yeah. it. And Theresa May has been a disaster. She hasn't been able to control her own party. She went into and made an agreement on the backstop, which was absolutely destroyed by Parliament. Massive amount of MEPs voting against it. Uh, so it was always inevitable, given the nature of the, the backstop demand and the chaos in British politics, that if the Irish government put this on the table, it was going to cause problems. Now, I hope I end up being wrong on this, and I hope you're right, hope and I hope John is wrong, and, and that, 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 that the British do swallow it. Uh, that would be great. But it has always been my view, over, since over the 14-month period this was put on the table, that the backstop was more likely to cause a hard Brexit and a border than it was to guarantee there would be no hard But has it not been seized by Brexiteers? Is the reality Inevitably, that it has it was, not it was been seized by Brexiteers where, and, that and that they have successfully kind of hijacked it, if you like, and taken it away from the insurance kind of least likely scenario that anybody wants, insurance policy, and put it at the centre of the table. And it is their recklessness, if you like, at the heart, that's at the heart of this, that is actually letting not only the whole, the whole structure fall apart, but actually their own people down as well, a result uh, of what is going if, on. Here. If you like the debate on the vote 10 days ago in the British Parliament, you had Labour people speaking mm. against the backstop. You had pro remain Tories speaking against the backstop. There's something that's in the coverage in the papers here that we, you know, we accuse the British of being ignorant of Ireland. People need to listen to the debate in Britain. The backstop is hated. 
Even reporters like Bloomberg, which don't have a view on it, they're just reporting the news, call it the much-hated backstop, the loathed backstop. Like, people need to understand, this is not just something about crazy Brexiteers who don't like the backstop. How there come is they couldn't predict then, Dan, that it was never going to fly? I, I, as I say, when I started, when this came on the table 14 months ago, I said, folks, you know, this has big implications. And certainly from conversations with people close to it, there was not an anticipation that it would become such a big issue. And that's, I think it was, that's one of the reasons. I think it was a miscalculation on both the EU and the Irish side not to see how badly things would go if this was put on the table. And let me just put this in some context here, okay? What the backstop states is that Northern Ireland will be taken out of Britain's market. Mm. Now, let's just think, when we joined the common market back in the 70s, we had a constitutional referendum about that. When we joined the single market in the 1980s, we had a constitutional referendum. Markets have profound constitutional implications, both for legislation and for the way the law is policed in the courts and the judiciary. Now, if that was put on the table as it was 14 months ago, where Northern Ireland would be changed constitutionally, mm. People didn't see that coming down the line. And that was a failure on the Irish and EU side not to see how serious the consequences of it were, would be. Well, I'd say the Irish did see how serious the consequences were, but they were rightly so thinking about protecting themselves and protecting the scenario of uh, what it would mean, what, protecting the, avoiding a no backstop scenario where you would have a situation where you would have a di different regulatory regime in the north, essentially a couple of miles up the road uh, where you would, and that would you know, if you like, disentangle or split apart the kind of the cooperation uh, between the two the, the two areas, and also threaten the Good Friday Agreement. And there's an obvious question, I think, Dan, which is, what would you have done differently, and how could you have constructed an agreement that might have got through? the House of Commons, if we go back to that period prior to December 27th. I, I would have continued as the Irish government and the EU side had done, was to grind the British down, making clear what their choices were, but not <coughs> putting something dramatic as the backstop on the table. As I say, you know, if you have a negotiation with somebody on anything, uh, say you're going to buy a house, and you go into the house and you say to that person, I will only buy this house if you leave the family heirloom that I like very much, some piece of furniture. And that person says, no, 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 this is a major sentimental value. I'm not doing that. And you insist, we're not closing this deal unless you sell me that piece of furniture with the house. You're going to blow up the deal. So, well, the you know, you need to be careful did agree about what... With they did agree to give the heirloom away. Like, uh, Theresa May and her negotiators did agree Then they this. found how much it was and, worth and, and yeah, decided exactly, they were changing yeah, their mind. Well, a, pri a prime minister like, who can't why, bring her own parliament with her. That's why walked away and, and the Irish team walked away thinking, that's that sorted. No, they did. Well, well it certainly wasn't. It, it, anyone who was following this closely, nobody thought it was sorted. You know, there was the moment this they thing came on the agenda. The back stop, they did think that the backstop was agreed upon, the, if you like. Well, uh, admittedly, the, the, knowing the, that they would have to go back, that Theresa May would have to go back and get agreement. The December 2017 agreement was a fudge. It was like Theresa May sitting down with, with, it was like a parent sitting down with three children and saying to child number one, I'll leave you the house. Child number two, I'll leave you the house. Child number three, I'll leave you the house. And everyone gets up and says, oh, well, she's promised me the house that's it I'll get it you can't and that's exactly what happened in December 2017 the British government promised everybody everything they wanted and that was a, a giant fudge 
and it was always going to break down. So the, the 2017... Why is the Irish government now supposed to take the rap for that? I'm if not, you I'm know what I mean. I'm Do you know, like, why is the blame being apportioned back on I, them? I'm not the great I, defender of them I don't here, mean but I just to don't understand it why terms. it's coming back on them. This is all... This lies on the doorstep but, of the UK. Look, this when, is when you, their When your family's in crisis, again, let me use an analogy. You know, if family's in crisis, somebody's unwell, whatever. There's no point in talking about blame. Like, we are in this situation, we need to analyse the situation, not talk about, you know, blaming the Brits and bashing the Brits and how stupid the Brexiteers are, as so much of the conversation has been. To use something that may be slightly offensive, and I don't mean it this way towards the British, but dealing with the British now is like dealing with a drunk. Don't expect rationality and be very careful about lashing out if you push them too hard. And that is uh, an analogy that I've used consistently, that Britain is in crisis. We cannot expect rationality flow from their actions and we need to deal with that rather than saying aren't they ignorant and stupid and dumb we need to say okay this is a country in crisis this will have an implication for us and it's not about you know blame necessarily it's we're in a crisis situation let's do let's damage limit the damage but let's John not, yeah let me bring you back in there let's not assume that we're heading for the worst possible outcome I think a lot of the commentary this week revolved around no deal and the worst case uh, emerging uh, I still think that Mrs May has a very sporting chance of getting her deal through Parliament how? if not on Tuesday then uh, within uh, but how is she going to change her red line well this is a case, I think, where her rigidity of thinking actually may have worked to her advantage, that she has stuck to her original position, Christmas time position. Plan B was actually plan A, wasn't even disguised. Uh, she's brought it back to Parliament. It's failed spectacularly. But if you look at the numbers here, uh, it is far from impossible. Uh, over 200 of her own MPs voted with her. Uh, so what she needs to do, I think, is to persuade about 50 or 60 of her own Conservative MPs and hive off about 50 or 60 Labour MPs to support this. And I think the Trump card that she's been waving, certainly they're doing it in private, is <coughs> what happens after the 29th of March. So she's hoping that she will so s- succeed in frightening members of Parliament about what happens after the 29th of March that she will be able to get the deal over the line. And I think there's a very strong chance that that will happen in the weeks to come. Can, can I say, just, I, I sincerely hope John is right and that, that, that British do swallow this. But I do think as a nation we need to start looking down the line that if they don't and we get six to eight weeks, uh, six, six weeks and we're, we're looking at days before this, does the Irish side back down on this? And I think we have to have a very serious conversation about that because... But if, can they back down, John, at this stage? Well, I think we, as, as, as commentators, need to have a conversation about that. If, if it comes down to Leo Varadkar not backing down and actually uh, we get a hard Brexit, which will be a disaster. Believe, like the, the, mm. the, 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 It will be a disaster for us. And if the choice is between Leo Varadkar backing down at the backstop 14 days out from Brexit Day or going to hard Brexit... My view is it is much preferable that Ireland backs down on this if the British end up not swallowing it. And I think we need to have that conversation. Politically, John, it's either one is kind of a nightmare for them. Absolutely. And the papers are full of this today. Uh, the opportunity cost politically for Fine Gael of backing down. I mean, they are so mm-hmm. identified now with this position, uh, even though, of course, they've been supported by the by Fianna Fáil, by Sinn Féin, by the other political parties all the way through this. Um, it would be disastrous politically. And you can see there's an opinion poll 
uh, in the Sunday, Sunday Business, Business Post, Post has an today, opinion poll today, which shows us some of the numbers, which confirms that that politically they've backed themselves into such a position now that it becomes, I think, almost impossible to get out of it. But that's why those of us in the in the commentary business need to sort of say to people, you know. Why, you know, do, do they so say, take the hit politically in the interest of the greater good? Of the greater good. You know, this is, and, and you could also spin it in a way that, you know, the Taoiseach has fought the good fight and we've, you know, put it, taken it right down to the end. And, you know, it was a gamble that would have been great, but it didn't pay off. And ultimately, you know, rather than bring us all over the cliff, we're going to back down on it. Now, I, I'm saying we're, we may within weeks have to have that conversation. I think people need to think very, very clearly do we die in a ditch over this thing if the British don't swallow it? As I say, I hope I'm wrong. I hope John is right. I hope the British do but swallow way, it. But if they don't, see, we've got a very, very big decision to make. We saw country. this week that from the government's perspective, you're damned if you do talk about it, you're damned yeah, if you don't. Yeah, they can't win in a way. So that no talk of a border, talk yeah. of soldiers on a border. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, by the end of the week, the T-shirt was uh, much more muscular uh, in the language that he was using about the border. Um, but, you know, there was vast criticism. You, you, you remember Michael Creed's car crash interview with Audrey Carville uh, earlier in the week uh, where they weren't talking about it at all. By the end of the week, the position had changed because dramatically. It, because but they of, just can't win. Because it was blatantly clear from Michael Creed's from that interview that that as as she said, you know, that there are people out there listening today who think you're treating us like we're stupid. I mean, and that's what it was. It was quite clear, you know, the answer to the question, what happens if you bring a tanker from Lake Patrick in Tyrone out to Donegal? Who's going to inspect the tanker? What is going to happen that tanker of milk? And he couldn't answer that question. I, I doubt that the government could answer it. I doubt that the European I don't think Commission anybody can answer, answer that, that question, question at, at the moment. But as Riker said himself, uh, there's no te- technological solution that's going to look in a truck and say, what hormone are in beef. I mean, this and that is the reality of yeah. what's of what is coming down the track here. And, and as it stands, it's only six to eight weeks away at this stage. Okay, Sheila Riley, Dan O'Brien, and John O'Brien, stay with us. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. On the record, on News Talk. Why doesn't Dublin? Why doesn't the Republic of Ireland leave the European Union and throw in their lot with this country? Uh, this is Susan Kyo here. I'm with my panel talking us through the papers, Dan O'Brien, John O'Brien and Sheila Riley. That was the presenter of the BBC Today programme, John Humphreys. Putting that question to uh, Minister of State for European Affairs, Helen McEntee, yesterday, she very calmly deflected it with a few facts about the Irish attitudes to the EU. What did you make of it, John? Well, it was a case of deja vu for me, Susan, After because I was on a radio programme with the minister. She was in Gothenburg at a European Council summit, but it was on LBC just before the December summit last year. And again, she was very, very calm in the way she dealt with the questions. Then the questioner comes to me, the interviewer, and says, well, 50% of Ireland's exports go to the UK, so you're going to be more damaged than we are. And I had to correct him and say that the real figure was 12% and not 50%. And he said, no, no, that's not true. I read it on the internet. And I mean, I was just astonished at this, but I shouldn't have been because it's been a very common experience for Irish people, whether they're in government or whether they're commentators in their interactions with some of the most senior people in Britain. And it brought me back to the referendum itself. I remember Jeremy Paxman 
formerly the uh, presenter of Newsnight, did a one-hour program on Britain's relationship with Europe. And it was full of all these myths and lies about that relationship and things which weren't even true 20 years ago. So nothing has really changed. And if you watch BBC Question Time every Thursday, I mean, it looks like a bunch of maniacs. It's the type of thing, though, you'll expect it on LBC, but to hear it on BBC Radio 4 is yes, a bit so different. Yes, so regularly and so consistently. It is astonishing how, how little these people know about Ireland or care. Sheila, what you make of it? I think it kind of shows some of the views that have gained traction in the British discourse over the past two years and not just like on the fringes of the mad Brexiteers but in mainstream media. Absolutely not when you're hearing that trotted out as you say on BBC um, on their flagship programme like it really is astonishing. Like on one level when I heard it first I kind of thought oh my god was that a joke or something was he just kind of trying to rile her up you know Um, but I'm glad to see you know kind of the reaction out there to it you know, just how people were, you know, just so astonished. There is an element, you'd have to say, of why don't you paddies just cop yourselves on? There is an undertone of and that within home. it. Yeah, and, and come back to the fold, you know. Uh, I have to say, I thought Helen McEntee did a great job there. She really just kept the head. Um, and uh, as John said, sort of, you know, uh, picked away at it with a few facts, you know, and basically... Uh, through through in the stats and and uh, particularly about the fact that uh, only it was thirteen or fourteen percent of exports go to the UK and I think then you know talked about the, how the, the majority of Irish people are happy enough to stay with the EU and that like I thought it was a very a masterclass in performance from her to be honest less so from John Humphreys now yes maybe um, Dan we'll come to you we want to talk about the economics of a hard Brexit which there was a good bit of talk about during the week and there's lots of coverage in the papers as well on that um, what's your take on the report that we saw from the central bank today that's predicting I suppose the consequences of a hard Brexit for Ireland yeah well the central bank came out with a report it's quarterly report on the state of the economy and it included a particular discussion of what would happen if there's a no deal, given the risks of that are high. Different people have different views on exactly the probability of that. But anyway, it came out and discussed it, and that was very good. It set out in quite stark terms uh, certain things. Um, In my view, it was not nearly stark enough. Uh, It said that, as a fact, the Irish economy would grow this year and next year, even if there's a no deal. Now, as somebody who did economic forecasting for 10 years... You don't have a crystal ball. That's it. Uh, nobody knows for fact what's got to happen. So uh, very unwise of the central bank to make that statement. Um, but it did highlight a number of things that are important. And one thing that has consistently not got enough coverage in our discussion here is what happens to imports. So a quarter of the, s- the physical goods we import come in come from Britain and more come via Britain from the continent with what, the land bridge, okay? So... We import much more potatoes, 25 times more potatoes than we export. We import 40 times more flour, which goes into bread, than we export. Now, if we get a sudden uh, disruption to that on, mm. March, uh, on March 30th, we could potentially have shortages of basic foodstuffs. Now, that is, you know, I don't want to sound alarmist, but that is an alarming prospect, and we need to be alive to it, and we need to be aware of it. Uh, so th- I think the central bank does to its credit, draw attention to the risk to import its stuff uh, first before it discusses the producer interests. And, you know, I've always said it, consumers matter more than producers. Do you think, you know, we're whatever we are, 60 days out from the 29th now of March, 
do you think highlighting that at kind of such is it a bit late in the day could this have come earlier from the central bank I think it could have I think it could um, you know I think we need to have discussions of the consequences of a no deal and you know again this was one of my reasons for, for having a grave reservations about the backstop from the get-go it in my view it always increased the risk of a no deal and a no deal will be an absolute shock to this country in multiple ways. And I think we need to do everything to avoid it. John, I might bring in there, what else in relation to the economics of it from the papers today? Mm -hmm. Colin McCarthy also writing in the Sunday Independent today, um, UK can break deadlock and can get out of jail free. Anything else catch your eye? Well, I think the Sunday Business Post has done... Is this the 10 truths of a hard border? Some of the hard truths Mm. about Brexit. Uh, Just questions that probably very few of us have thought about, for example, what happens to the railways? Um, We travel seamlessly enough from Dublin to Belfast now on the Enterprise, um, but will that be the case after the 29th of March? And the Business Post is suggesting that it will be disrupted, uh, to say the least, because um, northern train drivers, those who are based in Belfast, uh, if they're coming south, may well be required to have EU certification to drive trains across what will be an EU external border and into uh, the Republic. So you've got the kind of administrative logjam potentially in areas like that. That's just one area. They also talk about agriculture, obviously, uh, about banking on both sides of the border, about transport, um, and critically about healthcare, about cross-border movements of ambulances, of patients, uh, and so on. There, ha- there is a seamless quality to life. Uh, you know, if you look at Donegal, yeah. Derry, and vice <clears throat> versa, and all of that is potentially going to be terribly disrupted if we get the worst-case scenario outcome. Yeah, and I think actually, uh, Martina Devlin had a very good article in the Irish Independent yesterday. Yes, yesterday about, yeah, it was really about, good yeah, about just life on, on the border. Yeah, and about crossing the border. Mm. You know, and, and I thought it was the first time that I'd seen somebody kind of pinpointing, you know, the frustration and the humiliation as well it was the word she used it's, that stood out for me of kind of going over and back over a border. And now that the border is, is seamless, um, as John says, people are doing these treks t- sometimes 20 or 30 times a day and not even thinking about it. And the notion that you would bring all that back into into being is actually quite frightening. And I, I, I live on the border. I live about less than a mile from the Fermanagh border. And, you know, I was obviously very alarmed at uh, Leo Varadkar's comments this week because straight away it just brought into my mind this idea of that you're begin- could you be living in a military zone? You know, I mean, I know and it's, there's been much discussion about it and it's in, on the front of the Sunday Times today that we know there's extra guard resources going to um, to the region no matter what anybody says and there's going to be um, a regional unit kind of deployed out of Cavan uh, that will essentially be looking after the border per se. Now, the guards have said that they are not you know, going to take on economic policing. But the reality is that if there is an increase in criminal activity as a result of a hard border in place, well, then naturally enough, the guards are going to be stepping up their activity too. That stands to reason. And I mean, a hard border is, it's it's not just an economic thing. There's also a social and cultural element to it that I feel kind of hasn't been discussed enough and kind of the idea of living on a border and it brings that kind of edginess and that wariness. Mm. Uh, you do you know, still and live that, there? Oh, I do, yeah, yeah. And I w- travelled up there from this morning, which only took me an hour and a half, so you're not actually talking yeah, about a million, a million miles, miles away, away yeah. you know. And I think people sometimes 
well sometimes maybe that's that Dublin thing of people yeah. do think that it is just miles and often, miles away yeah. often I feel that when I hear discussions mm. on and I'm thinking like I'm only down the road folks you know uh, this is this is all terribly near but there is that kind of as I say that sort of a, a wariness and an edginess of border life that people don't really appreciate and I really did think that Martina Devlin's article yesterday ca- captured that so well you know that kind of watchfulness um, that's involved in living on a border and what would that mean you know and what Sheila are people saying to you then near where you live like what's the kind of atmosphere when you hear Leo's comments earlier in the week what like what are people are they nervy about it from day one people that I've been meeting who are much more au fait with uh, living there because I'm not living there terribly long than I have been saying that the only way is a hard border there there can only be a border because what other solution they could come out of this people have really believed have never believed that there wouldn't be some sort of a border structure in place because you could see the chaos unfolding in the UK and as time progressed, people were just, the more and more I was talking to them, particularly farm farmers, people involved in farming, organisations were involved in agri, were very aware of it and they've kind of literally been preparing from, I'd say, quite quite far beyond, quite far back for this because they just kind of perceived it as actually it was going to happen one way or the other. That's maybe the that is worst case scenario preparation and maybe in any case the reality is a lot of them would have been there before, you know, they've lived this life mm. before and, li- and known kind of what the worst case scenario could actually mean, you know, uh, more better than I would or better than, you know, maybe a newer generation. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Dan, bring you in on that. Yeah, look, I used to live on the Swiss-French uh, border and was living on the Swiss side and was dragged across every week to see in-laws on the French side. So I have a lot of experience crossing that border. And that, that border, anyone who's ever crossed it will, will find that it's it's nothing like how the border on this island used to be white because there isn't a political problem and there, are, there aren't soldiers. Many of the smaller road crossings, there's no infrastructure at all. On the bigger ones, it's more like a toll booth for cars. Businesses and, and, and trucks have to stop, but, the, but for individuals, for people, it's, it's very, very minor. My view, again, has been that the best outcome for this would have been that kind of a border the best achievable outcome, Brexit is always going to be a disaster, with the British not putting anything on their side. And I believe that's achievable under WTO rules, that only the Irish side would police the border. So you would only have some posts on the Irish side to collect tariffs on businesses and people would be largely unaffected. Um, now, believe me, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea, but it's always been my view that that was the best achievable outcome. And coming back to where we, you know, last uh, last last uh, 14 months ago, what should have been looked for rather than the backstop, uh, that always seemed to me to be a, a more achievable outcome. But the border is also, it's not one homogenous entity or thing. Mm. And I'm sure there are discussions going on between the government and the European Commission now about the different forms that different kinds of uh, border might take. Uh, Just to give you one example, um, to compliment Dan's, uh, I have gone through the Bulgarian-Turkish border quite a lot over the last 20 years. It's an external boundary of the European Union since 2007 when Bulgaria joined. It takes about three hours uh, to to go uh, across the border if you're driving a car, probably longer if you've got a truck. Uh, and that's a marked contrast to, say, the Bulgarian-Romanian border. It's only about four hours up the Black Sea coast. Um, you process through there now very, very quickly. Indeed, even though neither country is as yet part of the Schengen, it would be even faster 
if they were in Schengen. But we're more likely to see a version of that Bulgarian-Turkish border. But I don't think we're looking at that three-hour mm. de- uh, delay of any anything resembling that, partly because of the common travel area. But this also brings in other EU nationals. And I think one of the reasons the Polish foreign minister intervened the other day was because belatedly they've started to worry about the 900,000 mm. <clears throat> Polish citizens in the UK, 120,000 or so in Ireland. What happens to those people? I mean, if you're a trucker, for example, working for an Irish company, you go up over the border. What kind of delay do you face then? Uh, or what kind of rights do you have in either jurisdiction? They're very difficult questions. OK, John, Dan and Sheila, we have to take another break. We'll be back in a moment. On the record. On News Talk. This is Susan Kyo with you on On the Record this morning with you until one o'clock. My panel is with me, Dan O'Brien, John O'Brennan and Sheila Riley. Dan, I might come to you um, a little reprieve from Brexit, but there's a lot of um, coverage in the papers today in relation to social media. And I think of a lot of it probably comes on foot of that awful incident that we saw during the week of that horrific crash on the M50 and how the footage was circulated. Um, one in the Sunday Independent, uh, there's a call from Dr. Mary Aiken, uh, the headline M50. Horror make the tech giants act. Also, the Sunday Business Post has an editorial this morning as social media firms facing a new reality. And also, the Sunday Times, um, it's on the front page of their UK edition, but it's also inside the Irish version. They're doing a big investigation by the paper, uh, big tech firms pushing teens into suicide rap. But it does seem that the heat has certainly been turned up on these big tech companies when it comes to protecting people, especially young people, when it comes to social media. Absolutely. Look, regulating big tech is is one of the great public policy challenges of our time. This is a new area. These companies are the biggest companies in human history in terms of their resources. Uh, the way they they can interfere and they can facilitate the interference in elections, uh, bullying, um, the way they can get governments to give them sweetheart deals for tax purposes. All of these are very big and difficult things. Incidentally, we were talking during the break about you know, what we might have missed because we talk so much about Brexit and people may have missed it, but uh, Google was fined 50 million euro by the European Commission last week for breaching uh, data protection rules. Um, One positive thing about the EU, in my view, is that it, 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 it gives Europeans greater capacity to regulate big companies. Uh, than we would have if we weren't in the European mm. Union. Ireland would not be in a good position to regulate you know, the tech giants if we weren't part of that bigger entity. And I think that's important because many people who criticise the EU sort of say it's a capitalist club, whereas in fact uh, it's able, it, it gives a capacity to regulate those big, big companies in a way that wouldn't exist if we were all fragmented and, and, and small. But it's, it's, it is a huge public policy challenge and we're going to be talking about this for years, years, years to come. come. Sheila, would you agree with that? I, it is a big challenge that I think somebody needs to get a handle on. It, it absolutely is, yeah. I would agree with everything really that Dan says there. And as you say, it's all over the papers there this morning. Um, and uh, in front of the Sunday Independent, they have Dr. Mary Aiken from the UCD, you know, saying that social tech companies need to be held accountable for the distribution of that material. And the reality is that you can't broadcast it here, Susan. I, yeah. We can't publish it We can't put the pictures on the front exactly. of the paper. Yeah. We can't put them on, on our papers or on our websites. So if we as publishers and broadcasters can't do that, well, then tech needs to be held up because they too are publishers and they need to be held up and held responsible for it as well. I totally accept that there is an element 
of personal responsibility here and people need to you know look at themselves and I think actually uh, Ailish O'Hanlon has a good piece in The Independent about that as well you know about kind of about uh, our erosion of moral values if you can just share that material and not even think about the person involved you know um, there certainly are questions to be asked but it's it's not for me it's not just a case of personal responsibility there is definitely a bigger issue at play in relation to the regulation yeah I totally agree with you as well yeah absolutely media. Uh, Venezuela another thing that's in the papers John I might come to you on uh, this getting a good bit of coverage um, in a lot of the papers today the Sunday Independent uh, Venezuela's Maduro has eight days to announce fresh elections or the EU will support opposition leader and there's also an editorial I think in the Sunday Times uh, Sinn Féin's Venezuela venture is another step in the wrong direction what's going on with this? Well, Venezuela is one of the world's great tragedies. It should be one of the wealthiest countries in the world. It has been so misruled over a long period of time, but particularly during the Chavez and especially uh, six years ago when Maduro took over. It is a basket case. People have been out on the streets protesting uh, for weeks, if not months. Uh, people are living on the breadline. I mean, literally mm. living on the breadline in one of the richest countries in the world. It has oil reserves that compare to those of Saudi Arabia. Um, but uh, when I was watching the story of the last few days, I had echoes of the Cold War when, uh, you know, there were all these countries, faraway places of which we know little, which were kind of proxy uh, wars within the overall Cold War confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union. Now we have the United States uh, backing this um, Mr. Guido, the uh, interim uh, presidents, as he has been styled, formally or otherwise. And on the other side, the Russians are backing Maduro. Uh, I think it's just dreadful. I think the EU move uh, is one that shouldn't have been made. Um, you know, putting that kind of pressure in a domestic situation, which is very volatile, and we're essentially lining up with the Americans, creating further conflict with Russia. Uh, and I don't think we should be doing that. Um, uh, as for Sinn Féin, I think they've made a terrible error, like many people on the left here. I'm not so sure many of them know very much about what's been going on in Venezuela. And everything is sort of processed through this ideological prism where because these people are on the mm. left, you have to support them. It's disgraceful. The whole nature of the Maduro regime uh, should be one that repulses people on the left as well as people on the right. Dan, I might bring you in on that. Yeah, I, I agree with, certainly with that part. Like what's happened in, in, in Venezuela makes what happened, what's happened in Greece look like a mild recession. Like this is one of the biggest economic collapses. There have been more people leaving uh, Venezuela than have left Syria since this crisis, and that's the scale of it. And I'd very much agree with that, looking at it on an ideological position. I'm not so sure I agree with John on whether Europe should put pressure for uh, regime change, obviously not in any military way, but clearly the regime has lost legitimacy. It is causing a humanitarian crisis. At what stage should democracies ratchet up the pressure to say we no longer uh, f believe that you are good for your own people. Uh, the Europe's shared foreign minister, Federico Mogherini, is moving in the direction of taking a stronger position for all, all Europeans on this. And I, you know, I, I certainly take John's point. There are risks about uh, intervening in that way. You could end up making things worse. That there could be a, it could descend into violence between the, the factions. Um, but I, I do think that it's European values to say if if a regime is doing such damage to its people, then it's very much part of European values to call that out 
and say this is no longer a legitimate regime. Yeah, but you John, know I might as, just move you past, you know, past your mic there, just behind your mic a little bit. You know as well as I do that the history of Western involvement in Latin America is inglorious to say the least. And I think many of the people who are by default supporting Guaido actually know very little about sure. the people who support him sure. and about the constellation of domestic politics in Venezuela. So that's why I would be very reluctant to get involved as tragic as it is. Mm. There is a human tragedy unfolding. Um, but I really don't want to find myself on the same page as somebody like Mike Pompeo. Well, I think we need to be careful not to sort of say everything that the Trump administration does, we have to be against it. Um, you know, if it's, we look at it from European values perspective, if we believe there's a humanitarian, humanitarian crisis being caused in a country, millions of people are suffering, do we as Europeans try and influence that to make people's lives better or at least stop things getting worse? I agree there are always risks in intervening, but the situation there has just got so bad now, it's hard, you know, to, to see... less of a European response. Sheila, I might uh, bring you in because there's one other story I want to mention before we run out of time. This is the front of the mail on Mm. Sunday today. John Lee is this exclusive about the Kerry baby case. Tell us what's the story. Yes, it's an exclusive. Joanne Hayes, state by her silence, says this report. And just for um, anybody out there who doesn't know who Joanne Hayes is, she, uh, as a 24-year-old, was accused of murdering a baby that was washed up on uh, the beach in Cather, Sivine, baby John. Um, and the reason she was arrested was Gardy knew she had been pregnant, had been pregnant, and they arrested her as part of their investigation. It later emerged that her own her own baby um, had died, and she she had concealed that. Um, and uh, the guards actually charged her with murder of baby John, a, ch- uh, a child who had been stabbed twenty eight mm-hmm. times. Uh, and as we know, it led to the. Kerry, uh, the Kerry Baby's Tribunal, which was just a, a, an appalling, um, uh, appall- how could you even describe it actually? So appalling what that woman was put through, you know. And now it turns out that the state, um, Joanne Hayes is going to be offered money, all right, but there are conditions attached to that proposal. And we hear from John Lee that the proposal is that Joanne Hayes and members of her family, including her daughter, would be offered undisclosed sum for the trauma and distress that she um, was put through. But the clauses include that there will be a confidentiality confidentiality clause, no written apology, uh, no admission of liability. Now, Vicky Phelan is one of the people out today saying that really this is just smacks of trying to buy the silence of a woman. She has actually received apologies from the Garda Siakana, from the Taoiseach, from the Justice Minister. But apparently now she's not going to get any written apology and that the whole thing is going to be wrapped up in a confidentiality clause, which would be very convenient. I mean, there's just absolutely no logic for this whatsoever. And Catherine Murphy is quoted in that article as well, saying you'd have to wonder about the mindset of why would you try and impose a confidentiality clause at this point in time because let's face it you'd imagine it's all out there it's all out there and it just absolutely smacks of the state trying to kind of protect itself belatedly if you like in this whole debacle part of it would be that the the Hayes family would have to kind of write if you like and uh, submit for assessment for this uh, fund worth it to get it and in my mind the state should be writing to them and asking them pleading with them to take the money because of everything they have been put through I mean this is not all that long ago you're only talking about this essentially 35 years Mm. ago um, and these people are still alive and everything that they have been put through as Catherine Murphy says in the article there you know Joanne Hayes was absolutely destroyed and that 
tribunal was appalling and everything she was put through her her whole uh, everything from her menstrual cycle uh, to the number of partners she had was thrown out there in front oh, of the discussion. nation and it was absolutely appalling I, I really think this is just uh, one of those stories that I hope somebody in government sees sense fairly rapidly on because it could certainly take legs Okay, we have to leave it there. A big thanks to my panel this morning. Uh, Sheila Riley, Head of Digital with Iconic News, uh, the regional newspaper group and former editor of the Longford Leader. John O'Brennan, Professor of European Politics at NUI Maynooth. And Dan O'Brien, Chief Economist with the Institute for International and European Affairs and columnist with Independent Newspapers. Thank you all for joining us this Sunday morning to do all that talk about Brexit. I hope you enjoy the rest (laughs) of your day. Uh, We will be back after this. On the record. On the record. On Newstalk.